The Watermelon Woman, Journey in Sachidananda. This is Off the List. Welcome, people. Welcome back to Off the List. Um, this is our podcast for people who have lists and things they want to take off of them, namely <laughs> uh, pop culture, even more namely movies and music. As you hopefully by now know, I'm Nadira. I supply the movies. I'm talking to Ben. He supplies the music. That's me. And um, yeah, so this week our film is The Watermelon Woman, and our album is Journey into Sachidananda. Did I say that right? You nailed it. It was perfect. Awesome. Love that for me. Love that for me. We will start this week talking about The Watermelon Woman. That's right, because Mm -hmm. we flip. We flip. I guess just a quick rundown. The Watermelon Woman was released in 1996, directed and written by Cheryl Dunier, and it's um, a movie about a black, lesbian, aspiring filmmaker from Philly who goes on this sort of creative journey to make a documentary tracking down a black actress from the 30s who's known only as the Watermelon Woman. So that's where the title comes from. Um, And so my first question for Ben, as always, is what did you think of it? Why do you think I chose it? All that good stuff. I was inspired by your, like, what this is giving me vibes, but I'm going to do my own twist on it. Because I think now my favorite thing to do is to think what is my favorite scene from the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And for me, my favorite scene from this movie, which I thought was very good, if a little bit confusing at times was the moment where she's simply just standing on the rooftop and Mm -hmm. dancing in the sunlight, being Mm -hmm. herself with the city and the skyline. And I think that that represents the overall gist of this movie far better than even some of kind of the more explanatory versions of her looking for this watermelon woman, who we eventually find out her name is Faye Richards. It turns into a movie primarily about Cheryl's life and Cheryl's parallels with Faye and how even separated by nearly half of a century, she is experiencing shadows and pretty much exact versions of the same problems that this watermelon woman was going through. And some of the most other most important things to me in this movie were just how much the director wrote in very normal conversations between queer people. I think that that was incredibly important. How many of the conversations were about blackness and were between black people with not a single white person in sight, which is something that movies often struggle with. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this movie in kind of a more, I guess, almost cerebral way where I was watching it and I felt like it was towing this really fascinating line of an actual biography of Cheryl's life while telling an interesting story about who history forgets. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is sort of the essential thesis of the film, right, is the overall erasure of black women and black queer women in mainstream media, but also just in life. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Almost everything, if not everything in the film is, is fake 
um, I think it's the thing that most impresses me about the film, right? Yeah. I just love that knowing that everything is fake, like the amount of care and detail in this film, when you know that it's, it's really hard to process the first time you watch it, to be honest. And so rewatching it again for me, it's just like every little time that there's a photo that she finds of Faye or that there's a movie that she's watching that Faye is in or when she's asking people on the street, like, do have they ever heard of this person? All of those moments are in some way fake, if not entirely fake. And so to still have those moments and then to have like, gems like the group of gay guys who oh my are God, talking yes. about yes, Rosie yes, yes, Perez. Yes. Like, oh, man, that is so funny. That's like one of the I was going to mention that group. That is such a beautiful moment. Those little I love it vin- so much. Those little interviews were so funny that and and in particular that was my favorite it's just so great I mean there's so much I love about this movie I obviously love that it's unapologetically black I love that it's dealing with so so much commentary like it's dealing with the erasure of black women it's dealing with general commentary on being a lesbian or being a queer person it's dealing with the the way white artists and academics view blackness and black spaces and how they talk about them you know, which is shown in a, in a lot of ways, sometimes just in conversations and jokes that they make, um, but is also shown in even more explicit ways. So there's that fake interview again, like you think it's all real because it's so triggering with and, the professor and realistic. Yeah, that, that per- when- the professor and the, the cadence which she talks with and also the ways that she just almost kind of ignores all of the ideas that Cheryl's putting forth and talks about the space of blackness in like such detached terms from the rest of the film. So what she's doing in those like minute in that minute and a half is she's essentially explaining how black criticism of a black thing is wrong. (laughs) You know, like she's like, I don't understand why, you know, black criticism of these mammy images and this like watermelon stereotyping are so negative. Like it's a beautiful thing. I'm Italian. And of course she's Italian. She's like my Italian family. It's so on point. And I think a lot of this film is just so on point about all the messages it's trying to make about all the conversations that are had i absolutely love tamara tamara is like my favorite person in the whole film she's absolutely hilarious and there's so many quotable moments and it's just so lovable and it's about her journey being a black queer woman in the 90s and and not only just generally being a black queer woman but being a black queer woman who's in a relationship with a white woman which mm-hmm. i think is the other half of the film. So half of the film is sort of on this one track mind of finding the watermelon woman and what that means. The other half of the film is Cheryl dealing with this relationship that she doesn't really know how to deal with because she's happy in this relationship, but it brings up a lot of insecurities, none of which are necessarily discouraged by her friends. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Her friends are... About being in a relationship with a white woman. Yeah, I would say that it's one of those films where, interestingly enough, you actually kind of side with Cheryl in the relationship for most of the movie because, mm-hmm. or at least to me, she seemed with it. And then, like, right at the end of the movie, you're kind of like, okay. One, just one of my favorite things about this film is just the language. I think it's incredibly mm. quotable. I think it makes you, it immediately drops you into the world of these characters and you feel like they're friend. Like, you don't feel like anyone's sort of, like, playing out to you as the audience like you're definitely being welcomed 
into their world and it's just so quotable like just in general the phrase or the euphemism in the family to refer to someone who is also queer or also a lesbian is chef's kiss it's such a beautiful phrase yep. and and they all just have the most quotable moments um i think that there's a lot of sort of like continuation that exists today of lesbian jokes that's hilarious and just jokes about women like when they were talking about girls that Cheryl has dated in the past and they were talking about this one girl who they called spiritual and Cheryl was like spiritual is not the word heavy afrofemme centric is the word <laughs> yeah. I was like this is this is exactly it another important thing that i noted that i'm sure there is a lot of reason behind it is the kind of technical choice to at times have a very grainy film when mm-hmm. she is quote unquote filming the documentary Mm-hmm. And then a very clear shot when it is just Cheryl's story. Yeah. And I loved every time it would switch to that grainy aspect because they were acting inside of an acted movie. They It, it seemed like everyone was putting on yeah, a character. that meta thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone was putting on a character for it. And I loved the characters that they would play for the actual camera and the way that it would differentiate between how they were underneath like the normal film yeah so lots of lots of films that are meta that are kind of juggling two or more things do that it's a way of distinguishing between what is now and what is other so for instance even little woman does it in color grading it's you know like a a Mm -hmm. lot of films that either deal with time or that have a movie within a movie or you know that are just doing like two things or more often use those types of tricks. People who don't is where things get confusing. And that's why people are always confused by Christopher Nolan movies. Cause when he messes <laughs> with time, he doesn't do it. He doesn't change the camera. He doesn't change the color grading. He doesn't, he just keeps it the same. And so you're like, okay, I didn't realize that we jumped back 30 years. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I love, I do. I love that too. That was in my notes too. And I think the choice of having the, Horror film quality is very much aspiring filmmaker-esque you know like it's very on brand with I just got this camera equipment and I'm just trying to do the best I can and make this thing so that I can finally say I'm a filmmaker and that's another piece of commentary that the film makes is the struggle of being a creative artist or a filmmaker anything creative and at what cost right Mm. So when are you that thing? When can you say you are that thing? If no one has seen your work, if everyone's seen your work, you know, like what is the parameter for saying I am a filmmaker, I am a musician, or I am a whatever, and getting to that parameter at what cost? Big Derek Delgadio vibes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So where Cheryl begins and where Cheryl ends in the film are complete opposites. In the beginning of the film, she keeps saying, well, I'm an aspiring filmmaker. She hasn't really made a thing yet. She has all of these lovely relationships. You know, she has this relationship with her best friend. She has this budding romance. At the end of the film, she's made the thing. Yep. She's learned about Faye, but she has none of those personal relationships. They're all either done or on the rocks. As she says with Tamara, she's like, oh, I hope we get over it soon, mm-hmm. you know? And so at what cost, you know? And, and I think that that also says a lot about sort of the... It's a quintessential argument. It's a quintessential exploration. The artist struggle, right? 
Um, but for a black queer woman where community, where being in the family and calling it a family is everything. And to end on a letter with a woman who's saying, this is everything, yep. right? What did she give up and was it worth it? And I think that that is also something that it's easy to, f- to forget because the movie, you're just so in the movie at every moment, you know, you're just with those characters, you're just in that space. And so it's, it's easy to forget to look back on where the movie began and what has actually changed. And I don't know that I have a real answer, um, but I do think that that's a really important question that the film is asking. And because it even included something that I think a lot of marginalized writers struggle to include because at times it can seem a little bit taboo is kind of almost a form of self-criticism. But I, it felt to me at least like there were a lot of moments in the film where Cheryl was writing in a way to show that how the bitterness of that marginalization leads to irrational choices of people who are well-meaning and 100%. are truly, you know, on your side or on your team. I, I actually want to dig deeper into that for a second because mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's just it. I think, especially in the 90s, there is an assumption of a level of harm or violence that an quote-unquote intruder could do yes. to your community, right? And so it's not necessarily... It's out of fear, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like it's not out of actual anger or displacement. It's mostly about like, what can this can this woman do? And let me just prepare for it by just completely icing her out and being a bitch because something's gonna come out of her mouth that I'm not gonna like, or she's gonna do something that I don't like. Or I'm gonna have to be forced to explain something to her that I don't want to explain, or, or. She's going to impart these ideals on my friend who's somewhat impressionable and is already dating a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so I think that it's, it's purely out of fear and out of self-hatred, honestly. I just love when marginalized writers don't have this picturesque perfect image of their community, of their family. Yes. And it, yes. Cheryl has such a clear vision of her family and of the family and of the sisterhood and she writes about it in such a way that you understand it as deeply as an outsider can understand it i completely 100 percent agree you know she's not afraid to go there she's not afraid to play with who's the who's the villain and who's the hero yeah i just i absolutely love this movie i would recommend it to anyone at any time it it is not only fun and great and says a lot of wonderful things, but it's also like critically acclaimed. It's got 100% of Rotten Tomatoes, and it's technically, technically the first feature-length narrative film written and directed by a black lesbian woman about black lesbian women. Like you know, like the mm-hmm. first black lesbian woman to pick up a camera and be like, "I'm going to make a feature-length film about black lesbian women." Yeah. Um, no, this film which is, is super important. I can see, like, in the timeline. Like, if this film didn't exist, yeah, I can't even imagine how much further or how much, like, more held back we would have been. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I just love it. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. I think it says, says a lot of great things. And I think everyone should watch it just because I do think it actually paints a great p- picture of Philly. Um, oh, it's, like, one of the best Philly films I think I've ever seen. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not many that exist that are really about Philly, right? Like, 
like there's some that are like about Philly, but filmed in New York for 90% of it. And mm-hmm. you're just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for the ones that are actually like made in Philly, discounting all the M. Night Shyamalan movies, this oh, is, um, <laughs> this is definitely one of the best. Okay. So I think it's time to mm-hmm. move on. It's time for my jazz heart to sing oh man i am i loved that that was so good i'm so excited to be covering some jazz this album is actually one that i only discovered in college which for jazz is a little bit uncommon for me because i did most of my listening to it in high school and Mm -hmm. alice coltrane journey in satchajananda this album came out in 1971 recorded a year prior it's by alice coltrane who is john coltrane's wife she plays piano and harp a lot on this album actually it's one of the few albums where she plays just as much harp as piano and this album is i did it at the end of last episode i'm just going to lead lead on right now it is a seminal avant-garde experimental spiritual jazz album and what it means in the wider scope of spiritual jazz is really hard to understate. But before I go waxing poetic about how much Alex Coltrane <laughs> needs more respect on her name, um, Nadira, what did you think of this? Yeah, man, I thought this was groovy. I thought it was cool. I thought it was chill. I was out here just chilling in a in a boat you know i mean it was it's giving okay so it's giving exactly what it is like it's giving sailing down a river or a canal into an asian town of euphoria um more pan-asian because i feel like there were definitely you know like not just south asian um but mm-hmm. it, it um yeah i just felt like i was lazing down a boat that was going through a canal and i was just going through this town somewhere in asia um you know an unidentifiable sort of like melting pot of various asian cultures um where there was you know like incense smoke you know floating by and mm-hmm. you know just people meditating and it's just like very very chill very nice yep. um i was surprised to hear the harp happy to hear the harp i was like i feel like harp in general is just an instrument that just doesn't get that much love. And the the harp is a beautiful, beautiful instrument. Tell me anytime you've ever thought that a harp could just destroy a jazz solo. Yeah, never, never, never really, truly. Um, And then I was really impressed. So coming into this, I know I knew zero about Alice Coltrane, except that she was married to John Coltrane. Like I knew absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing. Um, And so I was really pleasantly, surprised when I looked it up and found out that she was the harpist. I was like, oh, that's dope. Like, I thought that she had just gotten a little harpist over here who was just, like, playing some stuff. But to find out that she was the harpist, I was like, that's awesome. Love that for her. She's the harpist, the band leader, the everything. She Mm -hmm. is the mastermind of this. And I I do want to shout out personnel because everyone on this project plays out of their mind. But in a very mature way. Obviously, Alice Coltrane (laughs) on piano and harp. The saxophonist, who is maybe like top three favorite saxophonist that I ever listened to, is Pharaoh Sanders. And on bass, you have 
Cecil McBee on the whole project. And then on the live recording, it's actually Charlie Handon and then Rashid Ali on the drums. And one other very important instrument, in case you didn't know the name of this, was the tempora, which was played by Tulsi. I looked it up. (laughs) Yeah. The tempora is very importantly the bedrock of which a lot of this music is built on because this music is based around trance. It is based around a lot of Indian, Pan, East Asian, when lower Asia mm-hmm. aesthetics. It's one of those, for people who like don't know, it's one of the, it's like that like classic string instrument that you hear when you're listening to anything that's like traditionally, like a traditional Indian music or traditional sort of like East mm-hmm. Asian music. It's that, not tinny, but that sort of high, like high pitched sort of like tinny yep. string instrument. Like you'll know it when you hear it. That's a, yep. that's a different and- yeah. That lays the bedrock for almost every song on the album. There are two that do not have it. Um, But even on those songs, the bass takes over in the trance element. And if you notice when the Tim Moore is not playing, the bass is playing extremely long and resonant notes in order to fill in that trance role. Mm. So to me, what is the most novel and impressive part of this album for when it came out was the fact that they play very long winding spiritual jazz songs on top of it yeah that one do not actually feel that long they don't and two manage to perfectly balance extremely technical fiery and impressive play without somehow disrupting the meditative vibe that this music gives off it is so incredibly difficult like if you if you were to ever tell me like oh Farrah Sanders played on top of a meditative trance beat I'd be like so he ruined it because Mm. Farrah Sanders is such a fiery Mm. player and Alice Coltrane is a fiery pianist when she wants to be like these are players who grew up within the tradition of spiritual jazz so to take that just passion that they have at those moments Mm -hmm. and be able to refine it down where it somehow does not ruin the ability to just close your eyes and just glide with these songs is a technical feat that every time I listen to this album, I cannot believe they managed to pull off. I, I truly, I just can't even imagine how much they had to reframe their abilities as players to not completely just blow out with these songs. To find that balance, yeah. I often say about this album, whereas a lot of John Coltrane's spiritual jazz albums, most famously A Love Supreme, those albums feel like they're searching for spirituality outside of yourself. Right. This one feels like sinking deeply into yourself and the spirituality inside of your own mind. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about, you know, them sort of needing to reframe how they think about creating jazz music, specifically with their own devices, with their own instruments, with their own musicality. Because it's very much how, you know, I mean, it's it's very much the sort of goal of like a really good gospel choir, right? Yeah. Because, and when I say gospel, I mean like the Baptist gospel. <laughs> 
for those who don't know what I mean. Um, <laughs> because everyone knows that every single member of that choir can blow. They can do riffs up and down, sideways. They've been singing since they were in diapers. They have the strongest voices that can do the most like agile vocal tricks. Mm-hmm. But if they were all doing that all the time, the choir would sound a mess. <laughs> um, yeah. And and so it's it's very much like something that a lot of singers, when they first join choirs, but especially especially gospel choirs, just because honestly gospel choirs tend to have the more like vocally agile singers um, that they have to learn, right? Like they have to reframe like what a strong, impressive performance is in terms of singing because they have to learn to blend and they can't all just be doing runs all the time, even though I would like that. They, they can't, they just, they can't do it all the time. You know, they have to wait for that solo and they have to find the beauty in the harmony. And I think, you know, like there's a lot of people who join gospel choirs who, who have found so much beauty in, in their solo, but they have to find the beauty in the harmony, especially if you're an alto. Um, and so I think that that's like a, I don't know. It's just really interesting to hear you hear you say that. Like all of these, all of these jazz artists kind of had to find beauty in the harmony. Yeah, you know, with their no, instruments. I, I love that reframing as well, and it's it's hard to kind of put a pin in the one reason why this album is so seminal because there are just so many reasons about it. But I think the most important and like notable in kind of the transition of jazz. It's just how many outside influences come in. We already talked about the Timora, a little bit of more backstories. The reason it's called Journey in Such an Ananda is because Alice Coltrane became a disciple of, I believe it's pronounced uh, Swami Such an Ananda. Mm-hmm. I looked this up too because I was like, I gotta know. <laughs> yeah. And the teachings of Hinduism in underneath Such an Ananda is what inspired this album and what put Alice in this mindset. And to me, the ability for an artist to draw outside influence into a genre without Mm -hmm. appropriating it, without making a flimsy version of it, a shell of it, and creating something novel is what makes this album so seminal. And I honestly, to this day, have really not heard an album that is able to so perfectly ride the line between very Indian, classical Indian style instrumentation and spiritual jazz, which is an incredibly black art form. Mm. It is a, it is two worlds that you do not see the line between until Alice shows it to you. I found it interesting that the term itself, like his, the last name, you know, like the sort of moniker given itself, like under the Satchitananda, like teachings, right? Um, it's it's a compound of three Sanskrit words that mean essence, consciousness, and bliss. Um, and so it's also understood as the energetic state of non-duality, a manifestation mm-hmm. of our spiritually natural, primordial, and authentic state, which is comparable in quality to that of a deity. So this sort of like, insane intense absolutely pure oneness i mean yeah it's i'm just not someone who can meditate easily so it's it's hard yeah. for it's hard <laughs> for me to like read this and be like oh yeah you know for me it's just like okay cool you know like and mm-hmm. i get for some people that works um but you could definitely see or hear rather that this album 
was trying to achieve that or trying to, you know what, less trying to achieve that and more so trying to be a tool that other people can use to achieve that. Yeah. Right. And I think that that was also really cool. Like it, it was less like, oh, she's not necessarily making a statement here as much as she's making a tool. I don't really have the most, we've said it. A whole bunch of times. We're going to say it a whole bunch more times. I'm someone who goes off of lyrics first. And there's so when no there's, lyrics here. <laughs> so when there's no lyrics in genres such as classical or jazz, it's not that I don't appreciate them. It's that I have almost zero language with which to talk about them. Mm-hmm. So, or to appreciate them on a deeper level. Like I can appreciate them sort of kind of for what the whole of what they are, right? Um, but it's hard for me to to tease out different aspects other than just like a general vibe. This album is so accessible and it Mm -hmm. is so easy for anyone, regardless of their experience with jazz and especially spiritual jazz to jump in, to listen and to feel some form of that elevation. Now, whether or not you enjoy meditating or good at meditating it is really easy to just get lost in what they are doing. Yeah. No, it was very tranquil, very cool. I love that Alice was a simp. And she named one of them songs something about John Coltrane. I love yep. that. I was like, <laughs> Alice is a simp out here, simping in her trance. This is, yep. yes, love that. I think people now recognize almost 50 years later how important Alice was in the broader scope of jazz, the entire brain fear label would not exist if Alice Tolk Coltrane did not exist. There'd be no Thundercat. There'd be no Fly Lo- Flying Lotus is literally her nephew. Like, it is impossible. Really? For, yeah. They're li- yeah, literally her nephew. They're, That's fucking insane. <laughs> right? Right? So I, I'm telling you, there there is absolutely no way that this really prescient, important part of modern music would exist without her and her husband's influence. So this album is the perfect introduction into her and into her style and into her playing. Because again, I can't say it enough. Every person on this album plays their goddamn mind out. And not they're in playing the way, like the rent was due. <laughs> they're paying like the rent was due. And it's in a way that I think it involves so much more subtlety than just someone just ripping out like an incredibly impressive Mm -hmm. or funky solo. Like there is so much subtlety. And I do think um, it was a pretty good companion for the film. I think, I mean, again, we talked a lot about how just everyone knows John and not enough people know Alice, even though she was out here creating legacies and changing the game. And I think, you know, if we're just going to continue on this, theme of the erasure of black women um in industries and foundations where they've been so fundamental i think is a common theme between both but just the vibes you know like they like they both have the same sort of vibe of just like trying to get to that like state of euphoria whether that state of euphoria is like achieving your goals and being happy and like in a solid relationship with your friends or that state of euphoria is a literal state of like spiritual euphoria (laughs) you know it's just it's just about getting to that place a place that is good whereas reservoir dogs was not about getting to a place that is good (laughs) oh man yes but yeah 
So next week? Should we do next week? Yeah, let's do next week. Um, okay, you go first because yeah. my explanation mm-hmm. is usually so the way this generally works is Ben usually knows what album or like genre he wants me to do, and so I just base the movie off of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you go ahead. Okay. I wanted to pick an album that came out within the past three years and an album that was within punk and a side of punk that I don't think a lot of people have seen. And an album that I think I'm willing to die on this hill is going to be considered a punk classic within the next 10 years, which is Itokoma Hits by Otoboke Beaver, which is a punk group from Japan. I wish that more people's introduction to punk was groups like Otoboke Beaver because I think that a lot more people would like the genre. I love punk. I yeah, I'm really excited for this because I don't know anything about contemporary punk music that much, mm-hmm. especially like pure punk. You know, like everything that I've listened to that's like that's like punk pop is actually like ninety percent pop and ten percent punk, and I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but they just I had a little growling. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely love punk. Listen, I just asked for a pair of Doc Martens for my birthday. We are in this. We are <laughs> in this. Yeah. So I'm really excited for that. Um, there's a few movies that I considered um but then i just thought why don't we both watch one for the first time so have you seen a documentary called the decline of western civilization i have i mean it sounds it sounds like some shit jordan peterson would be (laughs) like repping to me and i'd be like oh god (laughs) so i'm on a sort of like lifelong quest to watch more documentaries in general but particularly music documentaries that are actually good and this is considered like one of the best music documentaries and it is about the rise of punk in the states um and one of my favorite things to research is sort of the moral panics of an era so if you ever give me any metal we're doing satanic panic like we're doing like we're going (laughs) (laughs) nice Um, but um but yeah i i just love I love movies. I just love movies, fictional and real, however you want to define that, about teen culture and particularly teen culture in the States because I think it is really fascinating and the way adults view it is really fascinating. So anyway, needless to say, The Decline of Western Civilization is a documentary, um, a very important, very critically acclaimed documentary about the development of punk in the United States of America among those teens. And so I thought it would be really interesting oh, to sort of have I'm so a fucking excited. punk album from now by a punk group that's not American or British. And then to watch a movie about punk fans from then that's like not Japanese. You know what I mean? So like oh, to have different cultures, yes. different eras. Um, and I haven't seen it. So we will both be watching it for the first time. This is um, going to be so good. I'm so excited. Holy yeah. Because like, like, like you said, this is the first time I'm hearing what this one actually is. And like, oh, that's this is going to be such a good pick. Especially like as you were saying it, my mouth is already watering because of the ways that Otoboge Beaver talk about the contemporary issues of Japan in this album. And I know that this like documentary is probably going to talk about it in America. So it's just going to be perfect. It's just going to be so yeah. fucking good. I'm really excited. Um, yeah, I can firmly say that that is the watermelon woman and journey in Sashdananda off the list. And we will catch you next episode with our punk journeys. All right. Bye. Bye. Oh, Uzi Vert from Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that should be the closer of everyone. Off the List is made by Ben and me, Nadira. Our artwork is by Rebecca Pearson, and our music is by Cedric Hawkeyes.